The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. In tonight's uh, discourse, I plan to make an outline of three different subjects. If I don't finish, then I'll continue in the next satsang with this subject. I um, want to hold um, a presentation of uh, what Tantric Yoga is in general, metaphysically, where it all comes from. Because many people, when they come to yoga, even if they see the spiritual part of yoga and not just the gymnastic part of yoga, they have expectations or sometimes uh, they, uh, they misunderstand things. Um, when you read most of the literature on yoga, like if you read books of Yogananda or other prominent authors of yoga, then you find opinions which are not coming from the tantric yoga. And as you are going to find out, some of the methods, philosophies, even goals are very different. And that's why I want people to understand uh, very specifically the ways of work in Agama Yoga as a particular form of Tantric Yoga, because Agama Yoga is a typical system. And uh, I want to study some of the applications, because in the modern spirituality, there exist lots of hybrids. It is one of the things which needs to be clarified, as you are going to see, because people make a lot of mixed up things from a spiritual standpoint, and then they give to their own subconscious mind mixed signals, contradictory signals, and sometimes uh, this is very uh, damaging to people's spiritual life, because your subconscious mind is the one which decides a lot of things, and if your subconscious mind is not clear about what you want to implement, then automatically the subconscious mind will not serve you. The subconscious mind is that all-powerful servant of yours who says your wish is my command but if your wish is split then the command is contradictory then some people don't understand why some of these things don't work so I will start generally with the tantric yoga because although so many things in yoga are in the modern days coming from tantric yoga Nevertheless, they are not, they are hijacked, they are taken from the context of Tantric Yoga and they are grafted or transplanted in other spiritual environments and this creates a lot of contradictions. It actually changes completely the very purpose. For example, Vedantic people, when they do Tantric Yoga, like for example, asanas, the meaning for them is that they do asanas as a mortification of the body. Asanas for Vedantics are almost a sort of self-punishment. While, for example, in Tantric Yoga, that's not at all the case. That's completely not the case. And that's why I'm, uh, I'm starting, first of all, with the general context of Tantric Yoga. And when I say Tantric Yoga, I don't refer to the sexual part. The sexual part is just a crumb of Tantric Yoga. 
Tantric Yoga is a much, much more gigantic edifice of practices which comes from a philosophical view called Tantra. The very name Tantric, which today is a very split name, some people have real bad things. Some, for example, some Hindu communities, they have inherited such a bad impression of the name Tantra. One of our teachers went to teach a workshop in Singapore, and in Singapore she was told, you don't have to mention the name Tantra here, because the Hindu community here has the worst possible opinion about the word Tantra. So, but of course, those people never read Mahanirvana Tantra or Kularnava Tantra or Vigyana Bhairava Tantra. They don't even know what they are talking about, because when they say the word Tantra, they are referring to some superstitions from their grandparents and not to the real metaphysical tradition of Tantric Yoga. So the name originally comes from the Sanskrit Tantra, which is most often translated as warp, like the warp on a loom, a sort of an invisible network which underlies everything. Like when you have textile, cloth, fabric, that cloth is first of all weaved on a warp. And then on that warp you weave the cotton, and then you get the textile. So this web, this net which is inside the fabric, you don't see it, but it, it holds it together, that's exactly the concept of Tantra, that this universe is built on a warp. It's built on a net, and that net, we don't see it. We don't really see what connects women's menstrual cycle with the moon, yet they are connected. And therefore, the human being is connected to the universe, the planets between each other, everything connected to everything. This warp concept is a holistic concept, and it is also illustrated by the philosophies of the so-called holographic universe, that everything is connected with everything, that there is a holistic view of everything. So through the very definition, Tantra it wants to be, from the very beginning, a holistic interpretation of the universe, which is, of course, very difficult, given the fact that you should take into account everything. The sacred texts of this tradition, which emerged hundreds and even thousands of years ago, they are called tantras, and these texts are the ones which put the basis of what is called today the tantric tradition, that there exists a tantric tradition. This tantric tradition um, eventually got split by the two denominations in Hindu tantric and Tibetan tantric. They are similar to their core, but remember that the Tibetans are Buddhist and the Hindus are Hindu. Those are two different religions, and therefore in the cradle of those two religions, you could not use Hindu symbolism in Tibet or too much Buddhist symbolism in India, and therefore the symbolism started growing differently. So on the surface there are some differences, where to the core it's one and the same tradition. The Tantric yogis from the Himalayas, half of them went or communicated to Tibet, half of them communicated to India, to the south, and all these Tantric yoga, Himalayan Tantric yoga, got thus split because of the religious invisible lines of demarcation. Uh, there exists presence of the Tantric tradition in other religious environments than 
in Hindu and Buddhist, Hindu and Tibetan, but I'm not going to insist on this. There are, remember, other tantric influences because Tantra is not a religion. Tantra is a philosophical view of the world and it gets mixed with religions. There is a tantric Buddhism and there is a non-tantric Buddhism. For example, the Thai Buddhism is non-tantric, but the Tibetan Buddhism is tantric. That's why, although you have Buddhism both in Thailand and in Tibet, the priests are not the same, the temples are not the same. It's like the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. They are both Christian churches, and there are some similitudes, like both believe in Jesus as being God, but the priests, and they, they have even waged war against each other, the Catholics and the Protestants, for hundreds of years. So it's the same with Buddhism and with different other denominations in Hinduism and so on. So I want to say it from the very beginning, therefore, that uh, this tantric tradition which has emerged and in which you are, being students in Agama, you are part of this tantric tradition, either you know it or not. What we teach here is more than 90% pure tantric tradition. Either you are coming to a workshop of Kashmiri Shaivism, or you go to the first level intensive of Hatha Yoga, or you do meditation with the great cosmic powers, it's all part of the tantric tradition. So much, much of what we do here is the tantric tradition. Most of it, the Hindu tantric tradition. Some aspects in our teaching are from the Tibetan tantric tradition because it's very easy to, to blend the two because originally they come from one common tantric tradition. And when I teach workshops on art of dying, I can teach techniques from Tibetan Tantra. When I teach workshops on Tibetan yoga, I teach sometimes tantric Tibetan technologies and so on. Uh, this tantric yoga, because Tantra is a philosophy, but these philosophers, they wanted to find a method, like, okay, enough philosophy, what do we do practically? It's different from, it's very different from the so-called Vedantic and classical yogas. In India, very few people realize that there is a yoga tradition which comes, which is called classical. And it's called classical because it's based on the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Patanjali was not tantric. The Yoga Sutra of Patanjali is not a tantric yoga. Here in Agama, I gave a couple of years ago a long series of commentaries in the satsangs <coughs> of commentaries on the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. It took practically two seasons or a bit more than that. And I gave a tantric yoga interpretation of the sutras of Patanjali. But basically speaking, and I think they are made available somewhere or some excerpts from those must be uploaded on the internet or something. Those... Uh, what I'm trying to say is Patanjali has taught a form of yoga, which is the Patanjali yoga or the yoga sutra type of yoga, which is basically a form of Raja yoga, and that form of yoga is called classical yoga. It's not that we say that that yoga is false, and we actually teach many parts from it, but tantric yoga is not having the same philosophy, methods, and attention, even goals, as the Patanjali yoga. And you are going to understand this 
tonight in this lecture. That is why Tantric Yoga is another way of going into yoga than classical yoga, and it is another way of going into yoga than Vedantic Yoga. Most of Indian philosophy came from the Vedas, and then some of the ancient philosophers, they created a sort of more ascetic part of the Vedas called Vedanta, a more radical. And this Vedanta lingered and lingered until the 8th century, when a great Indian yogi and philosopher called Shankaracharya, Adi Shankaracharya, he revived Vedanta, and then Vedanta came up very strong. Then, as a parenthesis, in the 12th century, 13th century, India went under Islamic occupation, like the rulers of India from the 12th century until the 18th century, they have been Islamic. The, most of the Rajas before the British occupation. And as being Islamic, they curbed all the Hindu practices, which for Islamic uh, teachers were like heretic, pagan, heathen, primitive practices because of polytheism and a few things like that. And um, because of that, actually in India, all the visible forms of spirituality went very much persecuted for six centuries, and among them, Tantra took a real big blow, because Tantra was using a lot of external props, like music, dance, temples, architecture, yantras, hatha yoga, lots of visible things, while the people who were practicing Vedantic and classical yoga, they could just go in the forest and live naked, smeared with ashes, and they survived. So the historical conditions, the karma of the world and of India made that Tantra was too good for the reality of those centuries. And that's why it went underground and that's why today we have a very feeble reminiscence of it, practically almost nothing in India. And uh, in, uh, as about Vedantic Yoga, it thrived because this was the kind of ascetic yoga that you could do in the forest. And thus, uh, the Vedantic philosophy, which took anyhow a very big upsurge with uh, Shankaracharya in the 8th century, today when you go in India, if you go and study the different yoga teachers, 98% of those are either Vedantic or classic. Like Tantric yoga is extremely seldom due to those various conditions. Authentic Tantric Yoga. No, like you can go, there are some famous schools, I don't want to make polemics with anybody, but I remember one famous yoga school of India which puts on its books and on the front of its ashram, Tantric Yoga, Tantra Yoga, and so on. And when you go inside, they sing uh, Chidananda Rupam, Shivoham, Shivoham, the, 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 the hymn, of Shankaracharya, the Nirvana Saktam of Shankaracharya, which is a pure Vedantic thing. So there are many things in India which use the word Tantra just to impress, but actually when you go to the bottom, it's not really Tantra, or there are just a few aspects of Tantra we'll discuss about that. That's why you have to know from the beginning that there are different forms of yoga. And even in Tantric yoga, there are two different forms. One of them is the one which works more on Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, the Nata Sampradaya, the Yoga of Matsyendra and Goraksha, 
and the other one is the Kashmiri Shaivistic form of yoga called the Shaiva Yoga or the Trika Yoga. So even inside the Tantric Yoga, there are different versions. But I want to, first of all, to say, to state clearly that classical yoga, Vedantic yoga, Tantric yoga are three different families of yoga. And yes, you can borrow techniques from one and the other, but the problem is not the techniques. The problem is the philosophy, like what's the background? It's exactly like somebody de decides to decorate a Christmas tree. First, you need to have the Christmas tree. And then you decide what sort of decoration you put in it. The decoration is like the different techniques. But the philosophy, the basic philosophy, is like the Christmas tree. So if the Christmas tree is bigger or smaller, wider or taller, the decoration has to be applied accordingly. It's the same with this. Do not underestimate the importance of the philosophy because the whole thing is not only about techniques and technology. This being said, uh, from the fact that you have different philosophies, it, 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 it results that when you have different branches of yoga like this, you expect different methods, you expect a different philosophy, and a different lifestyle. Classical yogis, Vedantic yogis, Tantric yogis, and even among the Tantric yogis, the Hatha, Nata type of yogis, and the Kashmiri Shaivistic Trika type of yogis, they did not live in the same way. They did not think that they should live their lives in a similar way. That's very important because sometimes you especially those of you who are inexperienced and not very knowledgeable in Tantra Yoga, you will get confronted with other people who come from either Zen Buddhism or from Vedantic Yoga, and you are going to be accused by fanatical sectarian types of mentality that you don't know some things or you don't do some things or you don't conform to some things or you don't actually correspond to some things. And the answer is very simple. Of course I don't, because I am doing tantric yoga. I'm not doing your type of yoga. And in my yoga, things are going differently. But people don't know. They need to know about these things so that they should see the differences in a very clear-cut way. And thus, remember that it all comes from the metaphysical angle. It's not without uh, relevance that I drew that picture, which we always use when we talk about metaphysics. It's the essential metaphysical drawing, which we have here in Agama, because it represents the division of the reality in the two basic principles. And it all comes from the metaphysical angle. In the Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift was making fun of the Anglicans and Catholics, or some, or of some political parties as well, by uh, making fun that in the world of uh, Lilliput, where Gulliver had landed, there were two political parties, and all the differences between those two political parties were if one should break a boiled egg at the wide end or at the narrow end, because it was you know, because one of the kings had cut himself into an egg when opening it. And from then on, one of the political parties or one of the religious factions had decided that that was uh, prohibited, that was a taboo. Jonathan Swift was trying to say, 
what's the big deal? You know, all these people talk about the same thing. They roughly do the same thing. 99% it's the same thing. And they claim that they are so different from each other. Therefore, many people have the tendency to underestimate the philosophical, the metaphysical thing. But actually, as we are going to demonstrate pretty soon, the metaphysical angle and the metaphysical part is very, very relevant and important when it comes to spiritual practice, simply because it gives you a different philosophy with different goals and with a different lifestyle, and that applies so much in the case of Tantric Yoga. That's why I need to reinform you, all those of you who have been through the second level of Agama's teachings, you must have heard the lecture on metaphysics. I, of course, do not intend to resume that far from it. I just intend to make allusion to this. In all the spiritualities of the world, and in all the philosophies, philosophers accept that conceptually, reality can be divided in two major principles. They don't agree about a lot of things which are being told about those principles, but everybody agrees that you can speak about those two principles. In Western philosophy, those two principles are spirit and matter, or in some philosophies, spirit and nature, which are complementary. Of course, some philosophies like materialistic philosophies of Karl Marx and others like them, they say, oh yeah, there is spirit and nature, but spirit actually does not exist independently. Spirit is just nature. Spirit is matter. Spirit is just the electrochemical activity of the brain. And therefore, spirit is only apparently something different. There is no opposition. Spirit is actually matter. So ultimately, there is only matter. Most of the other serious philosophies, they agree on the existence of spirit and matter, but they disagree upon a lot of other things. This spirit and matter, in the classical yoga of India, which was designated by the Sankhya philosophy, they were called by the names Purusha and Prakriti, which in India are classical, and Purusha means spirit, and Prakriti means exactly nature. And therefore, the names correspond entirely, and the universe is a division in spirit and nature, spirit and matter. This is a division which comes from the one, Taoism says in the beginning there was the one called the Tao or the Dao, sometimes pronounced. And from the Tao or Dao, it split in two, the yin and the yang. And thus the universe is made of one when it is Tao. And then when it becomes two, it's made of yin and yang. Those two are yin and yang. Purusha is called yang or the heaven, the father. And Prakriti is called yin or the nature, the earth, the mother. This, two, this division is therefore universal, and you find it in all the spiritual traditions. Buddhism calls Purusha Nirvana, and calls Prakriti Samsara. Vedanta calls Purusha by the name Brahman, which means the absolute consciousness, and calls Prakriti by the deprecative name Maya, which means illusion, it means a magic dream which is tricking you. And thus every tradition of spirituality agrees on this duality. 
What they don't agree about is how you should deal with it. What's the relationship between those two? And this thing which sounds like Gulliver's breaking the egg at the narrow end or at the wide end is actually way, way more important than in Gulliver's Travels where it was meant to show a trifle, a nothing, because in spirituality it's actually a radically different opinion. That's why here I need to explain this because the whole view of spirituality differs and you are going to see that the Tantric Yoga is actually the right attitude. It's the holistic view. It's the full picture. And that's why sometimes even spiritualities which are not Tantric, they mysteriously borrow or take something from Tantra. And then if they try to explain it logically, it doesn't really fit. Like I'm going to anticipate. For theoretically, Karma Yoga should not exist in classical yoga or in Vedantic yoga or even in classical Buddhism. It's a nonsense, karma yoga, from the standpoint of those philosophies. It violates the philosophies of those. The same thing is about bhakti. Bhakti yoga or emotional religions like Christian devotion, theoretically they do not fit at all with the philosophy of those spiritualities. And they are hybrids. They are accepted, but they are in a tricky way, as you are going to discover very soon where that comes from. Therefore, this duality, Purusha Prakriti, which is fundamental, it is the two, the division of the universe into, first the one on top of the pyramid, and then two, and from there, the rest of the universe. These two, which are the roots of the universe, the plus and the minus, the yin and the yang of the universe, these two are also accepted by the tantric tradition, only that in the tantric tradition they are personified by a male name and a female name to show the polarity, to show, to give a sexual gender to the whole thing, and they are called Shiva and Shakti. Purusha, as I wrote there, is Shiva, and Prakriti is Shakti. Now, I'm not going to linger too much on this explanation because it's going to take too long, but I need to say the essential principle. In most of the non-tantric spiritualities, Shakti, Prakriti, Maya, Samsara is the devil, is your enemy. It's the boogeyman. It is the thing that you are supposed to run away from mostly. Like any classical Buddhist would tell you that nirvana rocks and samsara sucks. You don't want to stay in samsara. To stay in samsara, that there are some Buddhas who reach on the verge of eternal nirvana, and then with a terrible sacrifice, they tear their hearts out, out of compassion, and grudgingly they sit on the verge of nirvana and they refuse to themselves the bliss of nirvana to help the miserable creatures that are still caught in samsara. Like even when the enlightened beings stay in samsara, they stay in samsara agonizingly, gnashing their teeth resentfully, like it's the worst punishment. 
it's a martyrdom to stay in samsara because samsara is the devil. Samsara is the valley of tears. Samsara is that place where there is no certitude. It's a world of change, 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 impermanence, transiency, and therefore, like in samsara, there is nothing divine. There is nothing divine in maya. Maya is just an illusion, a hypnosis, and if you are like a moth blinded by the flame, you are just burning your wings in maya, and all a spiritual person should do would turn the back to samsara firmly, like Buddha. Leave your family, leave comfort, leave any care about your body, leave, go to this radical self-destructive mode, go and reach nirvana, even if it means the death of your body. It doesn't matter. Even if it means the death of a thousand bodies in a thousand lives, you should still persist because nirvana is the real goal. You should turn the back to maya, you should turn the back to prakriti, reaching to purusha. Classical yoga of Patanjali says that when you reach enlightenment, you reach in purusha and prakriti for you disappears. And the, and the Patanjali calls that state of success Kaivalya, which in Sanskrit means isolation, insulation. You are isolated from the world. The world, you don't give a rat's ass on the world. The world, as far as you are concerned, is dead. You have transcended the world. The same is valid about Nirvana. The same is valid about Brahman in Vedanta, they are all the classical forms of yoga, as well as many religious beliefs in Hinduism, Buddhism, they are exactly of this type, which means they all say you are in Prakriti, you can maybe feel your physical body, even that one you don't feel it 100%, so much unawareness people have about their body, you maybe can feel your prana, most people don't, you maybe feel your emotions. Most people are not aware. They react to the emotions, but they can't control, feel, do awareness. Maybe you feel your mind because you have ideas, and sometimes your ideas push you to go on a crusade, to conquer the world, to do things. But all these body, prana, emotions, mind, are just the four koshas, the first four koshas, anamaya kosha, pranamaya kosha, manomaya kosha, vijnanamaya kosha, and therefore there are layers of prakriti. Like even your intelligence and mind and philosophy and abstract thinking is still prakriti. So if you want to really reach spirituality, you have to turn your back to the body, to the life force, to the emotions, even to the mind. Leave your mind at the door, said some ashram in India, you know. Like, we don't want you to come. There's even the mind is an enemy because you are just reading books, thinking too much, and then you think you know. But the reality is beyond the mind. This philosophy is a bit extreme because it makes Prakriti and Purusha like water and oil. They don't touch each other. Either you are in Prakriti, which you have been for 5,000 lifetimes, and then we hope that one day you are going to go to Purusha. And when you go to Purusha, you are going to basically be free. This theory 
catches a lot. I'm trying to make it a little bit ridiculous and I'm presenting it in a little bit of a stingy way so that it creates a bit of a counter reaction because that's exactly not what we teach in Tantra. But believe me, I have gone according to this philosophy for I myself for years and years I've practiced my own spirituality because this is how it was presented by my first yoga teachers. When you read Yogananda, when you read Ramakrishna, when you read Shivananda, this is what you find. And this is what motivates a lot of people, and it has motivated me. This Actually, this vision, which is not tantric, I want to praise it into a certain phase of one's practice and evolution from the standpoint that practically it motivates you. It motivates you psychologically. It gives you the feeling of a war. You are at war with the world. And the world with everything it has, body, emotions, mind, the, your reaction is, fuck it. Kill it. I don't care. Which actually, although it sounds very radical, it gives to the human beings who do that a great power. It empowers you because then you are like a samurai ready to go for harakiri. You are already dead. Therefore, nothing matters. Nobody can tempt you with money, with sex, with fame, because you are dead already. You are going to have your seppuku soon. And therefore, what does it matter? Nobody can. So this philosophy, this rough philosophy, I'm not criticizing it 100%. Because pedagogically, educationally, it's very empowering at a certain level of one's practice and evolution. However, seen from the standpoint of an Abhinava Gupta, who is a great tantric master, this is a very incomplete picture of the universe. Because basically it simply says, Prakriti is a boogeyman. Samsara is bad. Maya is the devil. Get out of here. How? Mortify your body. Ignore the everything of the world. Focus your mind on the absolute, which is beyond space and time, and get out of here. Even Osho Rajneesh, who most of the time taught as a tantric teacher, sometimes being Indian, he relapses in some Vedantic patterns, and again, some, I'm not criticizing them, they have been very good and they did work for me for a long duration of time and I'm teaching them further to the pupils wherever it's necessary but I'm trying at the same time to give the full picture to make it clear. So even Osho Rajneesh says, uh, let's suppose that this is samsara, this yoga hall is samsara and out there, outside of the yoga hall is nirvana. And this yoga hall doesn't have mosquito nets. It's completely walled. And you have never been outside of it. You are born here. You lived here for millions of years. And then somebody comes and brings word. I have been out there. And out there, it's amazing. It's so much more than inside this yoga hall. You should really try to get out of your inertia and laziness and try to make an effort for 10 years or something like this and get out of the hall at least once, so then you will be convinced. You will see what's out there. And Osho Rajneesh, who speaks from the standpoint of the teacher, 
He says, if you teach this, many people will doubt you. Many people will say, how do you know you've really been out of the hall? How do you know it's, it's really true what you tell us about what's out of the hall? How do, how do we know that everybody can make it out of the hall? How do you know that when I'm going to be out there, for me it's not going to be painful because it's a subjective thing and I'm actually not going to enjoy it and then I'm going to regret that I wasted 10 years to get there. People make theories and they ping pong. So Rajneesh said, I as a teacher can produce a big fire in that corner or in that corner, some cloth, some smoky cloth, and then there is a lot of smoke and fire, and I shout, fire, fire, and everybody will just run out. And when you'll run out, you'll discover that it was a false alarm, but you'll be out of the hole already. Which means, in the argumentation of Rajneesh, I can teach you even bullshit. I can tell white lies. As a guru, I have the right to teach you whatever I find fit to get your asses out of the hall. Of course, some people say, well, you shouldn't do that. That's not honest. You know, let me choose. He, as a guru, he feels, I can choose for you because I know what's best for you. And some people would disagree violently with this paternal attitude of some Indian and Tibetan gurus who simply think that they know better and they can take a decision for you and manipulate you, therefore, for your own good. Therefore, but generally the attitude is this, out, 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 out of Prakriti, up, 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 go in Purusha. However, this view is like, okay, let's say you actually do that. At some point you get the spiritual motivation, you do that, and you go into pure spirit. You have reached Nirvikalpa Samadhi, according to Patanjali. You have reached Nirvana, according to Buddha. You have reached the consciousness of Brahman, according to Adi Shankaracharya. All three mean basically the same. So, okay, you've reached there, and now you are in a state of isolation. I am immortal, beyond space and time. I am pure consciousness, as Shankaracharya says. I am consciousness and bliss without form, because there are no more forms when you go beyond space and time. I am Shiva, I am Shiva. Lovely. And what's next? Nothing. At least from the standpoint of the world, nothing is next, because you are going up there, you remain as immortal spirit. People who judge with their mind and with their emotions ask always the absolutely silly question, what if you get bored after a while? It's ridiculous. You can't get bored of the infinite. You cannot get bored of something which is absolute, perfect, infinite, beyond space and time. Because there is no mind to get bored there. So therefore, that's a pure existence in which there is only an enchantment without end. People don't understand because people think that enchantment is something where I read a good book, I see a beautiful sunset, I eat some nice food, and that's what produces. No, those are sensory pleasures. There is a bliss, an intrinsical bliss, which is way, way beyond the pleasures of the senses. And this is what we are talking about, something which lasts forever. And this going, and you cannot get bored of it. So... That's not the problem that, oh, well, you know, what if you want to come back and so on. The problem is that this does not present a complete image of reality. The tantric yogis have said, what about Shakti? What about Prakriti? 
Are you just going to drop it? What about samsara, maya? You drop it? What's going to happen to it? Like, it still exists. You did not create it. It's created <clears throat> with a purpose by the divine consciousness. It represents 50% from the reality. It's not only yang. It's also yin. This part exists. You cannot justify an eternal existence only in the yang. Because God has become both yang and yin. God is heaven and earth. Dualistic religions, they tell you the stupid story according to which God is spirit, but not matter. God is heaven, but not earth. That's bollocks, because where did the earth come from? Where did the nature come from? Doesn't it come from the same original source? <clears throat> if both of them come from the original source, they're like two halves of an apple. It's 50-50. Both are equally divine. In Tantra, you can see it immediately. <clears throat> because if in Vedanta, you can say, <clears throat> and this is literally what Yogananda says, if in Vedanta, you can say that Maya is equal or equivalent to the devil from the Bible, that's what Yogananda says. In Tantra, it means that we are all worshipping the devil because Maya is equivalent to Shakti and it's divine. It's the mother of the universe. It is equally divine with Shiva. They cannot exist without each other because they are just like two sides of a coin. As long as there is a coin, the coin will have heads and tails. You cannot have a coin only with heads. It doesn't exist, then it's not a coin. If it's a coin, it has two faces. Those two faces are inseparable from each other. As soon as we have Shiva, we have Shakti. As soon as we have spirit, we have matter, and vice versa. Therefore, the tantric philosophy, which is holistic, they said you cannot ignore half of the reality. That half exists. It is created by the Supreme Being. And therefore, it is divine. Because the Supreme Being cannot create something which is not divine. It's divine. Being divine creation. And therefore, the big, big blow, the big, big revolution which the Tantric spirituality and the Tantric Yoga has brought to the world of spirituality is this. Stop this senseless fear from Shakti, from the nature. You have turned Shakti into samsara and maya and you've turned it into a boogeyman and it's not because it is God. Nature is also God. It's the visible part of God. It's the body of God. It's the externalization of God. It's the materialization of God. Therefore, you cannot, it's senseless to be afraid of your cosmic mother and to nickname it Maya or Samsara. And to, you better come to terms with it because nature has a meaning. What a hypocrisy that people are sitting in the world, Buddhas and Patanjalis are sitting in this world, which is the world of Shakti, Maya, Samsara, 
they use instruments as the world, like I'm eating just a grain of rice every day, I'm starving. Isn't that a nature phenomenon? It's something which you define in material ways. How is it possible that the fact that you eat little, a grain of rice every day, should have spiritual effects? You are doing something in the nature with the nature. Oh, I'm doing 10 hours per day of the lotus pose. Isn't this a natural thing? This is nature. It's matter. It's prakriti. How can you do something in the prakriti and then tell me that you hate prakriti? That you are afraid of maya and so This is samsara. It's a samsaric body. Your own spiritual evolution, whoever did spiritual practice in the last 10,000 years, they did spiritual practice with their body, with their life force, with their emotions, with their mind, therefore with material things. So you use matter all day long because you can't even exist in a non-material way. You can't even conceive a non-material existence. You use matter all day long to deny it, to reach to a point where you deny it. That's completely absurd. Even this shows that the fact that I can use nature, fasting, lotus pose, Udhyana Banda, whatever it is, the fact that I can use natural things to one day go pop in nirvana, it means that actually nature leads to nirvana. So there is nothing wrong with nature. Ah, that in nature there are many pitfalls and traps and... That's true, but that's not the essence of the problem. You cannot essentially say all the nature is samsara and therefore it is pernicious, defective, evil, and dark. It doesn't work that way. So the tantric tradition has brought this thing. Samsara is nirvana and nirvana is samsara. Spirit is matter and matter is spirit which quantum mechanics has brilliantly almost demonstrated. Shiva, says the tantric tradition of Kashmir, Shiva is Shakti and Shakti is Shiva and they cannot be separated except, except conceptually for the purpose of learning a lesson. But in reality they never exist separately like the two sides of the coin. They are soldered to each other. And therefore the tantric tradition says Whatever you do, you cannot define it as escape from samsara. Really, spirituality is defined by Buddha, by Patanjali, by Shankaracharya as a prison scape. The world is a prison called samsara or maya. And all you have to, all what the wise man or woman has to do is to escape from it. And what will happen to the prison the heck with it, screw it. You are out of the prison, you are out of the prison. Oh, some people uh, stretch a hand to those who are still in prison, but it's like, ugh, you know, it's like I can do it, but it's still a prison. Like there is no veneration towards the prison. The prison is an object of hate. And we can do it because we are so compassionate. And we can still deal with that miserable thing. But Shakti is not miserable. Shakti is divine and beautiful. Shakti is loving and protective. 
Shakti is the divine mother of the universe. You cannot run away from Shakti. This is why, as a parenthesis, most religions which are not tantric, most religions are not tantric in their character, they preach constantly negative things about feminine values. Whatever is feminine, because women are more like Prakriti and Shakti, it's always the negative side. There are Christian mystics and others who say the woman is the devil. If you go by Yogananda's interpretation, they are right metaphysically. If you consider that Maya is the devil, then women, which are the personification of Maya, could be considered as being, uh, you know, personifications or spawnings of that. But that is completely ridiculous. That is why I'm telling you this philosophy that you have to escape from samsara because it's bad and to go to nirvana, it's very motivating. It like puts chili in your ass. It puts fire under your ass and it says quickly, 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 out of here, out of here because it's dangerous. And you do it. You go like Buddha under the Bodhi tree and you say, if I die, I'm not going to stand up from here. I'm going to stay until I find nirvana because this fucking samsara is killing me and it is so dangerous and it's so pernicious. And you do it. It's motivating and you do it. The problem is, what will you do afterwards? Like, you are like Buddha, you are 35 years old, and suddenly you hit bingo. So what's next? Some Vedantic people from India, some Jains, some classical yogis, and they even committed suicide. They simply stopped eating, stopped talking, stopped doing anything, and their body just shrunk and died. And for you listening to this from outside, it can sound like horrible, scary. For them, it was not horrible and scary. It was like I have reached nirvana, my eyes are open, I look through the world, there's nothing, the whole thing is just the matrix. It's like I woke up in the matrix. And I sit in the matrix, and I see it's just a computer world. You know, it's like, it's like a dream. And then why should I eat in this dream? Why should I take care of my body? It's like nothing makes sense anymore. I am free. I have reached the supreme consciousness. The fact that meanwhile in this dream world, my dream body decays or dies, it's of no consequence. Ah, the people who still are in the dream, they will go like, oh my, oh my, what has happened? But they are in a dream, and I know they are in a dream, and they don't see the reality. So from my standpoint, I have transcended all the dramas, all the soap operas of this world. I have transcended them, and then I'm beyond them. But actually, the great traditions have shown that after you go to, pra to Purusha, you come back to Prakriti. Either in a single session when you go to Samadhi for two hours, and then you come back, and you are back in the physical body like Ramakrishna, one hour in Samadhi, one hour back here. So you are back, you move in space and time. And both in a more big, uh, not only as a day process, as a short process, but as a life process. Like I have used 10 years of my life to go to Nirvana, to go to Nirvana, to go to Nirvana. I reached Nirvana like Buddha. And now what do I do with it? 
if I am still alive, if I don't commit suicide, if I don't stop eating and breathing and drinking liquids, what do I do? Well, I'm coming with it back to the world. In the Taoist tradition, which is a mixed Taoist Buddhist tradition, there is the parable of the ten bulls. Actually, some authors call it the ten bulls of Zen, like it's more from the Zen Buddhist tradition, but the Taoists have used it. And the ten bulls of Zen, they represent in a symbolic way the ten stages of evolution of a young man who decides to go and reach nirvana. So in the beginning he is indifferent, then this, and it's all about a bull. It's an image from the Chinese farming environment with a buffalo. And eventually this guy reaches to nirvana and then the eighth pictogram of it, it's even called no bull. Like there is no more bull. It's Kaivalya, it's the void, it's reaching something beyond space and time, but it is interesting that the tenth pictogram of the ten bulls is returning to your village. The man is on the back of the bull, he rides the bull, and he is back to his village. Like, when you have reached Buddhahood, <clears throat> then with the Buddhahood which you got when you went in Sahasrara, you come back down here, back to your village. Another parable from the East about the stages of the spiritual evolution says, in the beginning, the, valley, the mountains are mountains and the valleys are valleys, which means people live in the illusion, in the matrix, and they see everything as the Maya tells them that it's supposed to be. Then, says the, this parable, the mountains turn into valleys and the valleys turn into mountains, which means the world goes like in a photographic negative. Black is white and white is black. Up is down and down is up. Which means I'm unlike everybody else. That's what the spiritual practitioners do. They stand on their head. They fast. They hold back their ejaculation. They do a lot of things which are unnatural. Everybody wants to sleep. The yogi says, I didn't do my tapas. I have to do a little bit of meditation. Well, your body wants to sleep. Yes. But that doesn't matter, right? I'm doing my self-discipline and my practice. That the valleys are mountains and the mountains are valleys. Everybody wants a suburban house and a dog. The yogis say, no house for me, no car, I want to find nirvana. Right? So it's like I have upside down ideals with the rest of the world. And then the third part of this sentence says, and in the end, the third stage, the mountains re-become mountains and the valleys re-become valleys. Like, after you've seen that, you can come back and do the illusion. And then you are in the matrix, and the mountains are mountains, and the valleys are valleys. You can live with it in a tantric understanding. You can live with it because Shakti is divine. There is nothing wrong. In the beginning, it's very easy to get revolted. Not only that there are epidemics and children are dying and there are tsunamis and wars and I don't know what and how could God allow such a horrible thing to happen and all these childish kindergarten uh, expectations of human beings. Not only this, but people, you know, are, having, are distorting the reality with expectations which are totally unrealistic, you know. Like, oh, why are things, why do we live on a planet where lions eat gazelles? The gazelles are such beautiful, gentle animals. And when you look on National Geographic, 
They are never going to really show you the scene, the scene when the animal plunges its fangs into the other animal and rips it and the blood is gushing and the lion is full of blood on its muzzle. It's a very cruel scene and it's happening. It's what God gave to the lions. This is the dharma of the lions. We are on a planet in which killing is condoned by God. It's not invented by human beings. We live in a world where the big fish is devouring the small fish. There is the law of the jungle. And this is created not by me and you out of selfishness. It's the law of nature. Nature is sometimes terrible, painful, and cruel. And it is without the contribution of the human beings. Even if you take the human beings off this planet, nature remains cruel and terrible sometimes. And many people say, I'm going to change it. There shall come a day when the lion shall lie together with the lamb and there shall be no more killing. It's a beautiful ideal, but it's total bullshit from the standpoint of Tantra. It's not possible. Therefore, Tantric people say the mountains are mountains and the valleys are valleys. Welcome back to your village. Now you come back with a wisdom. And things are just what they are supposed to be. Shakti is Shakti. Nature is nature. Look at Shakti. Learn from Shakti. Pray to Shakti. Ask Shakti to give you only the pleasant parts of Shakti. Ask Shakti to be auspicious to you. Like in the world of Shakti, you can live dressed in silk or you can fall down and break your leg. Both are things which happen in Shakti. But if you talk to Shakti and say, I'm not afraid of you anymore. I thought you were samsara and maya and I thought you were really bad and dangerous. But now I realize you are Shakti the consort of Shiva. And therefore I love you. I venerate you. So please be auspicious to me. I don't need any spanking anymore. I know that those pluses and minuses, those pleasures and pains, they happen because some people need a lesson, <clears throat> some people need pain, some people need to get awareness. But I got my awareness already. So I don't need any of those and if ever you, my cosmic mother, feel that I need to learn something, please teach me in the gentle way. There will always be a gentle way where you, in your infinite resourcefulness, can show me. There is always a possibility for an infinite being. And therefore, then you become friends with Shakti. Instead of considering nature a boogeyman, you ask nature to be auspicious to you. May the wind blow into my sails. Sometimes like Ulysses, I have to travel 12 years until I reach back home because the winds are enemical to me and because Poseidon is pissed off at me. May Poseidon and the wind and the sea be my friends and take me swiftly home. Thus, Tantra has stopped creating a devil out of nothing. Nature and matter as enemy. 
Tantra says, when you will reach nirvana, won't you afterwards have to still reach, live in samsara, like Buddha did. Buddha reached the enlightenment at the age of 35 or so, and then he lived until he was 80-something. Buddha lived 40-something, 50 years, in samsara, after he was enlightened already. <clears throat> and therefore, you come back to, a, back to the matrix, and while you are in the matrix, the hills are hills and the valleys are valleys, which you know that once upon a time you saw them upside down, the other way around. But it doesn't matter, because here you are in the matrix. Things, the laws of it are the laws of it, and you have to accept reality as it is. That's why the tantric tradition says this kind of teachings and this kind of teachers that tell you quickly, 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 out of here, samsara, samsara, boo, 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 get afraid, it's some... They are good teachers in a way because they motivate you, they speed you up, but they are incomplete teachers because they don't tell you what's on the other side of the mountain. It's like I'm goading you, goading you, reach the top of the mountain, reach the top of the mountain, but when you reach the top of the mountain, you're not going to stay there. You're going to get down on the other side of the mountain. The travel continues. So what's on the other side of the mountain? What's happening when you pass over the top and then you come back to the village on the back of your bull and you come with the consciousness, with the enlightenment. You live in this world. That's why the tantrics have said we are not interested into an enlightenment which looks like this. You stop breathing, your heart stops beating, you're gone. Death. Yogic death. Void. We are interested in what's happening afterwards. Ramakrishna, for example, said, in the middle of that, you can make a formidable effort and come back. And then you draw breath, you blink, you can start moving gently and the state of consciousness is still there. And eventually you can get to the point where you can walk, talk, move and the state of consciousness is still there. The awareness does not disappear just because you get out of your immobility. You can keep the unity in diversity. You can keep the immovability in motion. And thus... This is called by the tantrics of Kashmiri Shaivism, Unmilana, Samadhi, Samadhi with the eyes open. Some people have called it in other Indian traditions, Sahaja Samadhi, the Samadhi of naturalness, like you are natural and still in Samadhi. And Ramakrishna had called it Bhava Samadhi because for him it was related very much with love and emotions because Ramakrishna had been so much a bhakti so much bhakti was in his life. And therefore, here is a radical thing to understand. The tantric tradition gives you a more complete teaching because the tantric tradition speaks about the next step. The fact that some of you say, nirvana, 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 now, quickly. It's good. Actually, we don't deny it. It's good. But it's not the complete story. It's only the climbing of the mountain. There is also a coming down the mountain story, and that is not said 
in 90% of the religions and spiritualities because their psychology is you just get on top of the mountain and once you get there, you will see what's on the other side of the mountain. That time will come when you will get there. When you'll cross that bridge, then you will see what's all about. You know, it's like you don't need to worry about it in advance. But the tantric tradition says, why not? Why shouldn't you know in advance the full picture? That the goal, the goal is not some people believe mysteriously that the goal of spirituality, the goal of evolution, the goal of becoming is to just get out of this world. But it's not because the goal of it is to come back in this world. Ultimately, a great tantric philosopher said, then why did God send us here? Why has spirit, Purusha, been injected into matter and it created life, intelligence, consciousness, that is me? That's what I am. I am an injection of spirit into matter. What you see of me, my body and my clothes are just a certain amount of matter. It's just molecules. This is all made of molecules. If, if and when I drop it, it will be dead matter which will just feed the daisies. It will just be part of the nature. It's just molecules. But these molecules for a number of years are enlivened by a mysterious electricity. There is in me something which makes me sparkling in my eyes, transmitting enthusiasm and knowledge to you, you know, being there like I'm electrifying you with my spirit. This spirit is in the matter. Why bother? Why bother to go into the matter so that eventually you fight for a hundred lifetimes to escape from the matter? And when the matter is of divine origin anyway. Therefore, it results in the tantric metaphysics that the universe is entirely something about the dance of Shiva and Shakti, of Yang and Yin. It is entirely about spirit and matter hybridizing with each other. That this is the will of God. This is the very Dharma that God wishes that kilos and tons of molecules of matter should be enlivened. Life is not something which is accidental. It is something which is created by deliberate will. And why create at all life? What's the purpose? So therefore, it cannot be that the whole spiritual evolution, which is the supreme act of the human being, the whole result of the spiritual evolution is to drop dead the matter. The body drops dead and your spirit is in some incomprehensible place beyond space and time. That's not because the game is happening here and now. And therefore, when Buddha gets enlightened, then he comes back and he does things here. And therefore... This is very, very important to understand because the tantric tradition is a tradition in which the universe, the body, is accepted. It is used. Like, don't tell me that the planets and the stars are maya. 
tell me what the meaning of the planets and the stars is, such as in astrology. Teach me how to read the planets and the stars. I want to look at Shakti and learn things from Shakti. I want to, it's a harsh word, but it is said in the nice way, I want to use Shakti, because Shakti is here to be used so that I can reach Nirvana. But I don't need to reach Nirvana with fear and enmity. I can reach Nirvana at the same time being loving, compassionate, present. And therefore, this means that the tantric tradition has totally different methods in terms of the physical body. Most of the religions until recently, they did not use the physical body. Maybe some of you don't know, but Hatha Yoga is a strictly tantric form of yoga, and it appeared only 15 centuries ago. There were some rudiments of Hatha Yoga before the 5th century AD, but real, full-on Hatha Yoga with Ardhamatsyendrasana and Paschimottanasana, this exists only in the last 15 centuries, full-on, with texts and Guru Matsyendra and Guru Goraksha and all those things. This is Tantric Yoga. Today, when somebody like Krishnamacharya or somebody teaches it, Krishnamacharya is not a Tantric. He is just a Vaishnava, a regular Hindu man who believes that Maya is the devil and who is Vedantic in his philosophy and who takes Hatha Yoga as a fitness, as an entertainment, as a method for stretching the hamstring and maybe healing some things in the body and it's very good for your body. But the philosophy... Is yeah, it's very good for the body, but your body is shit because it's going to push the daisies sooner or later, and it's a big illusion and lie, and you shouldn't cater to it too much. Therefore, there is a very huge contradiction in the modern teaching of yoga, because technically speaking, only tantric people should teach hatha yoga and kundalini yoga, because they teach it coming from the right place. The other people teach it like this. Their philosophy goes there, and their Hatha Yoga goes there. And there is a huge contradiction. That's why when Hatha Yoga was imported in the Vedantic and classical environments, they started transforming it. And they transformed Hatha Yoga as a Western author, a priest from Denmark who wrote some books criticizing yoga as a heathen, pagan, anti-Christian thing, a very rabid critic of yoga, he pointed very well at texts from different gurus who are Vedantic and classic and who presented the yoga asanas as methods of mortification and self-punishing. Because they could not understand the asanas as a method of blossoming via the body. Because that was not part of their philosophy. Their philosophy was that the body is the enemy. So here we got Sarvangasana. Hmm. Sarvangasana is from yoga, and also from yoga is the fact that the body is the enemy. So how do we do Sarvangasana to punish the body, to make you see that the body is the enemy? But it, those two come from two different forms of yoga, which are philosophically radically opposite. 
And this hybridization is very, very wrong and it produces a lot of the confusions of modern yoga. That's why tantric yoga has a different attitude to the physical body. There's no need for any mortification because your physical body is not your enemy. Ah, if you live like a total ignorant, unconscious animal and you constantly listen to your body and you subordinate your spiritual needs to the comfort of the body and to the materialistic needs of the body, then indeed you are temporarily blinded by your body. But that doesn't make the body wrong either. It's just the wrong thing is that you don't know how to deal with such a wonderful instrument which Mother Nature gave to you. So, the Tantric Yoga deals in a very constructive way with the physical body. The Tantric Yoga deals in a very constructive way with the energy. Like most religions don't want you to have life force, too much of it, because it's disturbing. And on the contrary, they want to temper it down. Tantric Yoga is dealing in a very different way with the emotions. Either you are in India, either you are Vedantic, or the Buddhist monks in the Theravada tradition, when it comes to emotions, they are all of them like this. You are an idiot. You are a genius. Like, whatever you tell me, I don't give a rat's ass. I don't have any emotions. Emotions are just belonging to the soap operas. It's not good for monks or for Vedantins or for this. I have to transcend. As long as emotions make me waver, I'm a loser. I cannot reach true meditation because the emotions dominate me. The tantric yoga has learned the dynamic form of dealing with emotions. Instead of just cutting them down to zero, you use them. Because emotions are like the wind. Somebody says... I cannot, uh, I'm disturbed by the wind. If there is some wind, the candle of my flame is going to flicker and I cannot do my trataka to focus on my candle. And some yogis say, yeah, but you know that you can use the wind for a lot of things, such as when you are sailing and when you are, no. The wind can be used, the emotions can be used. But of course, the wind can be your enemy. Somebody who doesn't want to catch the wind says, this wind is disturbing me. And somebody says, why don't we make a windmill? And then the wind will even give us a lot of functionality. It's just a matter of how you use the energy and the forces of nature. So in Tantra, we are dealing with the emotions. Many Western people are relieved when they come to a Tantric school because you have to go, you go into some Buddhist place or Christian place, you have to be as dead. Like suddenly somebody says something, somebody slips or something, and you go like, ah! and, and then it's like, oh, no, did I say something wrong? You know, like nobody laughs around. Everybody is so serious and so interiorized that having some wild emotions looks like out of the place. And when people come to a tantric school where people dance and do things, then people are say, oh, this is lovely. Here there is no repression. Do not, get, do not get deluded by this. We don't repress the emotions, but we constantly are taught to exploit them. It doesn't mean that in a tantric school 
it's just libertinism. It's a license to leave your emotions fart all over the place as they want. No. The emotions, you can use them if you channelize them, if you channel them, if you direct them. Because otherwise, if they are just a chaotic force, they are of no use. The window, the wind, the water, they have to be channelized properly and then you can use the energy of the wind and the water. So apparently, we are very liberal with the emotions in Tantra. But it is a bit of an appearance because we channelize them, we, we direct them to where we need them because we say it would be a pity not to use emotions which come anyway naturally and make 10 years of efforts to suppress them when you could actually let them flow and just direct them skillfully and then they would become your servants. Emotions can serve you. Even the fear, even a lot of things can be used positively eventually. That's what we do in Tantra. <clears throat> Using the mind. There are so many people who are afraid of the mind. But Tantra says, why don't you guide your mind with a mantra? Mantra, the director of the mind, the protector of the mind, man, manas. And then the mind becomes a very good friend. Like your mind wants to do something. Why try to kill the mind when you can make your mind say, Aum, Aum. Like your mind wants to do something. Okay, do Aum. Then it's fine. My mind does something. <clears throat> and I don't need to suppress it. My mind is doing something which will yield positive results. And thus, the methods are very different. Tantric people would use some things which people in Vedanta, classical yoga, Buddhism, Christianity, and others, they would never dare touch. Such as delicious things. In all the religions, you see monks, nuns, refraining from everything which is delicious because the idea is if you, for example, enjoy delicious things, you are going to put your heart here. <coughs> uh, that, by that I paraphrase of saying of Jesus who says, you should gather treasure in heaven, not on earth because on earth the thieves are going to steal it and the worms are going to eat it and wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So your heart is not with God but with the gold you buried under your house as a safe, as a security or something like this. While that goes very well with the message of Jesus, it's not a tantric way of looking upon things because, again, it creates this duality. It creates this opposition between things. You can use an emotion, you can use the mind, and it's a difference of lifestyle, of philosophy. I could insist so much on this, but it's getting late, and I hope you got the point. <coughs> Therefore, like you would not enjoy, as I said, delicious things. If you enjoy hot chocolate, then hot chocolate creates, in the language of brain science, neurotransmitters. And those neurotransmitters, they make you addicted. Not as much as cocaine, but still, there is an addiction to hot chocolate. And when you are going to be on your deathbed, and suddenly the water dissolves into fire, and your mouth gets dry, your last thought is going to be, 
I wish I had a last sip of hot chocolate. And meanwhile, you are dying and you are not thinking about nirvana. You are not thinking about immortality because your brain is screwed by the need for hot chocolate. And that's why the Buddhist monks, they say you should not have hot chocolate for 30 years until your brain cells forget about the hot chocolate and the neurotransmitters in the brain disappear. It's history. And then when you die, there will not be any chance that there will come a thought of, thought of hot chocolate. Therefore, the idea is that if you give yourself sweet things, not sweet literally, but sweet in the meaning of attractive, pleasurable, of any, five sen of any of the five senses, you are going to create addiction to this world, which is samsara, maya, and you can't have that. But the tantrics say we are not afraid, because everything which is in samsara is nirvana as well. Whatever thing may come to us which is shakti, such as a hot chocolate, we are going to see Shiva into it. Because Shiva is Shakti and Shakti is Shiva. And the only thing is to learn to see the spirit in matter and the matter in spirit. To see them together. That's the way of meditating and of thinking of the tantrics. And that's why, to make the long story short, we have such different methods in Tantra, which for the other people who are not tantric are condemnable, risky, Maybe dangerous. No, you will not have, for example, our friends who are Buddhist monks uh, worship women's bodies like we do in the transfiguration. In the transfiguration, you can meditate on the woman's body because the woman's body, besides being a natural animal thing, it is also Shakti, transfiguration, Shiva, spirit manifested in form and all that. Thus, the tantrics are doing many things the other way around. So, this results in a different lifestyle. For example, tantrics traditionally did not feel too much the need of going into the forest or living in caves. Tantrics did not value too much ultra-ascetic life. Many tantrics of India, they lived in plenty, they lived in comfort, they lived dressed in clothes, not smeared in ashes. Many were from the upper classes and so on. It was a general feeling that Tantra is spirituality of people with good karma. When you have bad karma, you find a teacher that teaches you how to whip yourself all day long. And when you have good karma, you have a teacher that teaches you how to reach nirvana by drinking hot chocolate. The final result is the same but one is climbing a very painful side of the mountain and the other one is climbing a very comfortable face of the same mountain. It's the same mountain, but how you climb it depends very much on the method. So it's a different lifestyle. Tantra is very good for the 21st century. Not many of you who come to yoga want to really punish yourselves. There are people in this hall who would say, well, if that's the only way to reach to God, I'm ready to do even that. I thought the same way 30 years ago. I said, if, if it takes celibacy, I'll be celibate. If it takes poverty, I'll be poor. If it takes whatever, I'll do whatever it takes. Whatever Milarepa and whoever Ramakrishna did, 
I will also do. I will do whatever it takes because if that's the way to reach to nirvana, I want that more than anything else. And I'm ready to pay whatever price is to be paid up to my own life. I'll give my life for it. I'll die in the process trying, so I'll reach. So that's very beautiful to think like this and to feel like that. But with the tantric tradition, you say, good. It's good that I'm motivated. That's a good verification. And ultimately, I discovered it's not necessary. So it's good for me that I have that motivation. It's that strong of an aspiration. But then ultimately, there was no need for whipping yourself. That's only a superstition that you need to whip yourself for it. So it's a different difference in philosophy, like how you live your life. And there, is a even, there are even different goals. Because most people practicing classical yoga, Vedantic yoga, um, Theravada Buddhism and others, all they want is to black out of here, to go into the void, to reach the great void, Nirvana, Brahman, to stop life. Buddha even condemns it. Buddha says that one of the greatest obstacles to apply his teachings is the thirst for life. If you love life too much, you won't be, because Buddha says what I'm, he doesn't use these words, that's my interpolation. Buddha says basically what I teach is like a suicide. You do my meditation, you have to want to die. You have to want to go out of here. And if you want to frolic around, you are not ripe for my teachings. But then what would you do with some human beings that don't have that self-destructive thing? For example, in astrology, they say that the last sign of the zodiac, the Pisces, has this deadly thing because it's the last sign of the zodiac and the zodiac cycle ends. So very often Pisces people, they have this attitude of, you know, fuck it, I'm out of here. And on the contrary, the first sign of the zodiac, the Aries, is like the baby of the zodiac. It's freshly launched into the cycle and it wants to enjoy everything. So actually according to this, if I simplify it a little bit, According to Buddha, Ariases are not talented for reaching Nirvana because they want too much to live. They want too much to experience. Pisces are good for Buddha's method because they want to die. They want to disappear. Therefore, I'm simplifying it. Of course, there are so many other factors, but I'm on purpose simplifying it. That's why the tantric method applies to both temperaments. Like, do you want to practice some suicidal harakiri type of yoga? Here it is, the method of Buddha. Do you want to also want to practice something which is with hot chocolate and beautiful sunsets? We have that also. It's a, it's a much more whole method. It understands the dry method, and it says some people are self-punishing perfectionists. They, if they don't whip themselves hard, they feel that they don't deserve to reach nirvana and God doesn't love them and they don't deserve immortality. So such people need to go to, to hard retreats to punish themselves, to do vigils, fasts, all sorts of austerities 
because then their subconscious mind blossoms because they feel that they have earned the merit and they have earned the right to have a reward. But other people are not at all like that. Other people say, can't I get it anyway, please? Yes, shamelessly. Yes, no, not by working hard. Just like this, as a free gift, because it's a free gift anyway. Can't I get it anyway? Yes, of course you can. It's like that silly joke where the bear or the lion is going through the jungle and reaches to the house of the wolf. And he says, wolf, come out, I have to kill you. Why do you have to kill me, says the wolf. Well, the lion says, I, you are on my list, on my list of to-do. I have to kill the wolf today. Well, the wolf says, if that's the situation, he comes out, the lion kills him. The lion goes to the lair of the fox. says, fox, come out. Why? I have to kill you. Why? But why is that? What have I done? Well, he says, you don't matter. You are on my list of to do here, and I have to do it. I have to go through the list. Well, the fox surrenders. The lion kills her. Finally, the lion gets to the lair of the rabbit. Rabbit, come out. Rabbit says, well, what? He says, I have to kill you. Why? You are on my list. At which the rabbit says, but what's this list? Well, it's my list of to-do for today. And the rabbit says, but listen, lion, can't you just delete me from your list? Yes, says the lion. <laughs> and then he goes further. Like, the right question has to be asked. But sometimes masochistic people don't ask the right question. Because masochism is too tempting. It's, that's their trip. you know. So it's like, why not reach enlightenment without effort? Without asceticism? Without self-punishment? Isn't it possible for God, who is omnipotent and everything, in an infinite consciousness, every alternative should be equally available? So... That's why there are even different goals. The tantric people don't want to black out of here. The tantric people want to stay here because it's the will of God for me to be conscious here. That's the famous parable from India explained in another way in which a guy asks an oracle and the oracle says you have six more lifetimes to live until you reach nirvana and he starts wailing, oh, six more lifetimes of me doing tapasya and spiritual effort and another guy is told you've got 6,000 lifetimes and he yells with joy and he says 6,000 more lifetimes to have fun in this wonderful universe and then the voice of the oracle says actually you are enlightened already but this was just a test to prove the matter and you passed it successfully. No? Like if you are a Buddha, who says you have to run anywhere? If you are Abhinava Gupta, who says you have to go anywhere? Why is somewhere else better than this, than here and now? As that dictum which I saw on the door of one of the toilets was, if you can't find God wherever you are, where can you find it? Yes, even in the toilet there is God. It's everywhere. If you cannot find God here and now, on this planet Earth, which has its miseries, there are so many, there's so much dirt on this planet, really. But it's divine nevertheless. Nature is as it is. And if you can't see the divine, that's why Leibniz said we live in the most perfect world of all there is. Because from the standpoint of the divine consciousness, everything is just as it is supposed to be. The human consciousness striving to produce changes 
It reflects ignorance. Because if those changes would really be necessary, God would have done them long time ago since God is omnipotent and omnipresent and, om and omniscient. It doesn't need you to make any change. That's why understand, therefore, that there are different goals. The tantric say, somehow God made me blossom conscious. Yes, there are six billion people out there who are not yet conscious of this identity with the divine consciousness. But some people, like Buddha and others, they say, pop, gosh, I'm conscious. I'm here, now, and I'm awakened. Okay, and I am in this body, present in this world, in this space and time, in this maya, in this samsara. So I'm supposed to be here. If there would be a hundred like me, life on this planet would change. If there would be a thousand like me, boy, what a revolution we could produce on this planet, right? So therefore, there is a meaning of me being here, and the divine consciousness wants me awakened, not out of my body, but awakened in the body, in the world. Therefore, the tantrics don't want to go anywhere. They say, samsara is fine. Samsara is nirvana, and nirvana is samsara. There's no need to go anywhere. Your functionality is here and now, as you are. This is the beauty of it. That's why the goals are different. People who use classical yoga or others, they just want to die, to stop breathing and to stop heart beating and to go into the void. But the tantric say afterwards, won't you still be here? What are you going to do? Cut your own throat and die? Aren't you going to be here for another 40 years? Then what's the meaning of being here? Because you, you don't only stay on the top of the mountain. You go over the top of the mountain and you come back to the valley. And then what's going to happen? The full picture. And that's why you need to understand Tantric Yoga as it is. Tantric Yoga is actually, I think, from all the metaphysical studies, is the right angle. It's the holistic approach. This is the integral vision. Not only showing you the ascending slope of the mountain, but also showing you the descending slope of the mountain, both aspects of it. And that's why, because Tantra is actually the complete vision, and also together with it in Kashmiri Shaivism, non-duality, non-dualism, monism, because of this in spirituality, there have emerged many hybrid forms that copy some part of Tantric Yoga which they don't believe to their spirituality. For example, in India, even Vedantic people, and even people living in classical yoga, they do karma yoga. Why would you want to do karma yoga in Maya, in samsara, in prakriti? Like, oh, we need to clean the pillows. No, it's Seva day, next Sunday, and if you don't come on the Seva day, the pillows will be dirty for one more month. Because in the Seva day, that's what we do. We clean the pillows and the mats. So it's for you. But, so we do this. And somebody would say, why would you want to clean the pillows? The pillows are Maya. They're crap. This is the nature. Like, why do you care about that? Instead of spending one hour and shifting the covers of all the pillows in the school, shouldn't you do one hour of meditation? Karma Yoga 
if you take it logically from the standpoint of Vedanta, classical Buddhism, classical yoga, it sounds like rubbish because it's like you are shooting yourself in the foot. Like why would you waste one extra minute of your life to create some change in samsara when you are putting a lot of efforts to just get out of samsara? It's exactly like you are going to run away from the prison and meanwhile you start painting the walls of the prison and cleaning it. Like screw the prison. If it stays dirty behind me, who cares? Why would I reduce my practice from escaping the prison in actually maintaining the prison? See, karma yoga, if you interpret it from the standpoint of the ascetic mentality, is rubbish. It's completely useless because the, their philosophy is, fuck the world. The manifestation is rubbish and it has to be abandoned. And yet, it is there. The karma yoga is a tantric aspect. It's not a coincidence that Krishna, who was a man of great tantric mentality and teachings, Krishna is the first one who publicly presents karma yoga in the Bhagavad Gita. Karma Yoga is a philosophy worthy of Krishna, worthy of a tantric master, not of a non-tantric person. In the same way, it's happening in many devotional religions and Bhakti Yoga, that people accept some energies and some emotions. It's like you take Shakti and you just cut a slice from it, just cut a part of it, and say, this is okay, this is the acceptable part of Shakti. Like, we don't want you to be depressed. We don't want you to be suicidal. We don't want you to be hateful. We don't want you to be destructive. But we want you to be loving. Loving and devoted is okay. Buddhist monks say, that's bullshit. Either you are none of them, or if you release one of them, you are going to have all the Pandora's box. So either you don't have any emotion, or if you try to select only some emotion, it's bullshit because you cannot have only the pleasant, you'll have the unpleasant. You can have only hills. You must have valleys between the hills. Every time, every valley is followed by a hill, and every hill is followed by a valley. There is no hill which can go on forever. Therefore, it's kind of nonsense. Once you allow love, you allow hate. So therefore what's this? That you just select some emotions which are kosher. It's okay to love God. It's okay to feel goosebumps through the body and have tears flowing on your cheeks because of your love for God. But the other things are not okay. That's a hybrid. It's a strange mixture between asceticism and tantra. But it's not full tantra like, okay, if we accept this, we accept them all. <clears throat> and we can learn how to use them. It's, a, it's still an ascetic acceptance. Like we accept some because we discover that those some can be useful for us. And then we try to have a non-stop war, like this is like fighting with the devil all your life against all the negative ones. Because the negative ones are unacceptable. Those are sent back to the devil, Maya. Samsara, the boogeyman, don't do that. These are hybrids that karma yoga has been imported in the regular yogas, classical Vedantic, or that bhakti 
has been accepted in the world of religion. I hope a lecture like this will help you understand much better the philosophical, metaphysical basis, which unfortunately are not kept clear. In Agama, we are a tantric school and we endorse, we embrace the tantric mentality. That's why when people say, what's your philosophy? I say Kashmiri Shaivism, like indeed the full-on tantric metaphysics, which is holistic. Please understand clearly, the tantric mentality integrates, it's, it's holistic, it's integral. It integrates also the ascetic practices. And it says, yes, maybe, sometimes, you need to go a little bit tough on yourself because your brain is a little bit out of rhythm. You are a bit spoiled. You have too many neurotransmitters which are rogue in your brain and you are a little bit addicted to stupid things and you need to slap your wrist a little bit sometimes. But So that is understandable, but it doesn't become as the only way and as a purpose in itself. That's the way to escape from samsara, the bad boogeyman, because you have to go to nirvana. No, yes, you can do those for a while. When it's not necessary anymore, you can turn to other practices, and it is up to your teacher to guide you through the different practices which may be necessary for you at a time or at another. This makes the tantric tradition so bright so complete, so luminous. That's why those of us who understood it, that's why we love it so much, because the tantric tradition is the integral truth. It's the holistic truth, and it is a much bigger picture than what usually spiritualities and religions present. I will stop for now. It's late enough. I hope you got the point and you'll meditate on these things. I intend that in the next uh, satsang, which is probably the last satsang for this season, I'm going to present in the context of Tantric Yoga, the, uh, the Agama Yoga, the Agama style of yoga, and also to bring some of these elements about Karma Yoga, which we integrate, how we integrate them, and what is the meaning of Karma, Bhakti, and other things integrated not in a hybrid, incomplete way, but integrated in a holistic way in a tantric yoga. With this we have finished for tonight, and namaste, and thank you for participating to this meeting, and with this we have finished for tonight. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.